All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode three hundred and six, and it's just Jason and myself today. Um, we're going to be talking about scarcity. Now, there's a word. Take that word apart, <laughs> and you know all you need to know. What we basically did here was we pulled, or actually Jason wrote this one. He pulled mainstream accounts so that we can demonstrate the idea of scarcity and what it's used for. By the way, in the episode image, I used the idea of water because it sure feels like water is going to be playing the scarcity game, uh, which is a bit ironic to be fair about things. In the older ideas, we're living in a hermetic sealed thing. In other words, everything that's ever been in our world is in our world. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. And an absolutely beautiful Louisiana morning it is. I'm with you. We're having finally broke through. We're probably firmly in spring now, and I'm ready for it, man. I'm going to get out in the garden. Going to do a lot of flowers this year. Yeah, it's going to be great. Anyhow, um, let's talk a minute about the uh, solar return uh, that you went at because you guys called me a couple times and I ended up getting on the phone with Chris Van Maitre. So for people to catch people up on who Chris is, if you don't know, probably a lot of people do know. In 2016, I think it was spring, I filmed what I've come to call the sun we don't see, which actually I think I'm going to change what I call it. Uh, I think I'm going to call it the spiritual sun. But for description, uh, there's a sun we see and a sun we don't see. Uh, that's what I filmed in H Alpha. Now, at the time, I had so many thousands of hours of night lunar watching, and I didn't have near the experience with the daytime filming, which incidentally is actually quite a bit harder because the sun's beaten down on you. There's just all these reasons why filming the sun is much more difficult than the moon. So at the time, I posted this, and I wasn't 100% sure. As it went on, I was reasonably sure that it was provably an object, but let's Let's pick it up. Oh, I should say, I think, what, two or three years later, Chris Van Maitre uh, got a hydrogen alpha telescope with a double stack, which is required, um, and he replicated what I did, which pushed things in the direction of this is becoming more provable that there's something going on here. But anyhow, let's pick up there, Jason. You met Chris at the, sol at the Solar Return Celebration. Yep, really, really nice fellow. I got to hang out with him quite a bit, along with quite a few other people. The whole thing was just awesome. I got to play some of my original music. I got a whole lot of compliments, which I was very grateful for. First time I played a show in five years in front of hundreds of people. <laughs> so that was a whole lot of fun. I probably could have done better, but I want to do more, so we'll see where that goes. But anyway, Chris was showing me, well, first he was telling me, and then he pulled out his camera the next day to show me what he had shot in Houston. And indeed, he caught the same phenomenon, whatever you want to call it, except as opposed to being over and off to the side, like at a diagonal, like you guys had captured the second sun image. This time, the, the second image was directly below it. Right. And this is where it starts to get interesting. So just to catch people up, I think Chris was, the when he confirmed what I shot in the spring of 2016, I think he was up in Colorado. I hope I have that right. But anyhow, he's been shooting now. He's down in Houston. And so previously, and by the way, we're shooting through a diagonal for people who knows what that means. But previously, looking at the video and ignoring the fact that we're shooting through a diagonal, uh, you would go about a sun and a half width up and a couple sun widths to the left to find the object. And that's how Chris shot it the first time. This time, it was directly below the sun. But here's where it gets interesting. Chris brought his H-alpha, hydrogen alpha solar scope to the event 
that Jason was at, and he was telling me they were going to shoot the next day. So I began to talk about the things that I want to do. Uh, by the way, I'm, I'm hoping I can now, I'm two years beyond my surgery. I'm not supposed to lift heavy things, but I'm going to go for it. I think I'm good now. Um, all these experiments that I want to do. So I told Chris, we should get a polarized light filter and put it over the end of the solar scope. And he goes, wow, there's somebody here who has that and I'm shooting tomorrow. So as Rose and Jason are driving home yesterday, they called me and told me what happened. And apparently uh, they were able to eclipse the spiritual sun or the sun we do not see with a light polarizing filter. And that has some proofs and implications that we will get into when we record with them later today to get in depth. But I, I thought it was a good thing to get on the record. And this is becoming a thing. If any of this is correct and we are shooting the source of the sun, the spiritual sun, something related to the sun, then it has to tie to our age. And by the way, I've been going into the old Christian mystic writings, which is a bit ironic because <laughs> they, they tie things to Blavatsky and everyone knows what I've said about Blavatsky, but I'm sorry. There's so much legend there. It's like every other Wyatt Earp. What's true about that? Uh, but to get back to the point, um, there's all these interesting writings about the spiritual sun and other things in a couple places I found. But anyhow, uh, should we jump into scarcity here? Let's do it. All right, let's preface. So we literally had to draw verbatim from mainstream to make the point. And as is pointed out in the episode image, scarcity is a tool. And it's a tool that's used to make changes that are not helpful to society, but scarcity is used uh, to get society to go along with whatever's done. And drawing from the mainstream is exactly what we wanted to do because we want to demonstrate how they're putting out total poppycock to control and manipulate, as always. Well, that's the whole crux of censorship in our age. Uh, you can talk about these things, but not those. Well, what's that about? Uh, if you're not harming anyone, what that's about? Well, think of the, the children's thing. Now, I have to put on my YouTube channel that this content is not for children. Uh, why? Because the children need to be looking at dinosaur train and a spinning world and whatever NASA says. Uh, that's the real reason for censorship. It's about controlling what people think. All right. So to get this started off, we will be discussing three major commodities that are used in some way, shape, or form pretty much everywhere in the world. Those three things are oil and petroleum products, diamonds, and precious metals. All of these resources are controlled through the process of artificial scarcity. And Jason, we have actually some firsthand accounts here, which we kind of, we were going to do an episode, but it's kind of so risky for the source that what we've done is we've wrapped it into this. Um, and I'm not going to tell you which one of those is, although it might become clear later on. But diamonds is the perfect example. Uh, the entirety of, of the value of diamonds is because the bulk of diamonds in the world is controlled by, I think, one place, De Beers. Um, I'm, I don't think that's changed. Um, but if all the diamonds flooded the market all at once, they'd be dime a dozen. And once we get to the diamond section, you'll see that the old Bernays techniques were used. Once again, even though it wasn't Bernays himself, uh, not that I could find, it was a different ad agency, but the same concepts of social engineering were used to convince people, especially in the Western world, that diamonds are the thing that you must have. 
Well, it's funny. Um, we'll get into all the things that have gone into pushing diamonds and attaching it to every marriage, basically, in the world. But I've had an interest in uh, gemstones and mostly just crystals um, because of what I accept is true about the mineral world and in what order things came to be here on this place we call Earth. But the people that are heavy into this always laugh and say, don't know why people buy diamonds. Why don't they get something of value when they get married, like an emerald or a ruby, which I think is hysterical. We'll get into these things. So the mainstream definition of artificial scarcity. Artificial scarcity is scarcity of items despite the available technology for production or the sufficient capacity for sharing. The most common causes are monopoly pricing structures, such as those enabled by laws that restrict competition or by high fixed costs in a particular marketplace. The inefficiency associated with artificial scarcity is formally known as a deadweight loss, and that's right out of the mainstream definitions. There it is. Which one of the devil's advocates said that the, the main sin in life is competition? Do you recall who that is? Oh, that'd be a Rockefeller. Yeah, something like that. As we get in here, what's ironic, uh, diamonds will be the odd topic out because we haven't had a direct source for that. But the oil thing that we're going to do and the metals thing that we're going to do, we actually had people that have worked in these industries uh, and supplied information. So we've wrapped it into here to protect everybody for doing committing the sin of speaking honestly. And remember, as we get into this, this is all the things that they tell us. So first thing, world oil reserves. There are 1.65 trillion barrels of proven oil reserves in the world as of 2016. So that's five years ago now. The world has proven reserves equivalent to 46.6 times its annual consumption levels. This means it has about 47 years of oil left at current consumption levels and excluding unproven reserves. And I don't remember where I've heard this, but from what I recall uh, looking at this kind of material over the years, I think it's like three huge reserves of sweet crude is what they call it, the stuff that's easy to get at uh, in the United States that they have it. <laughs> and it's just untapped. I, I can't confirm that. I don't want to go chasing that information down because that's not what this is about. We've done an oil ep and petroleum episode that was very specific about a lot of this stuff. So, But there you have it. This is what they're telling us outright, which still isn't that bad. That's a lot of petroleum left to dig out even by their standards. Well, there's a couple things going on here. It's not just the scarcity when we're talking about oil. They've done these other things. Like you and I had a firsthand of account of an oil well worker that said they tapped out some places they were pumping oil out, tapped them out, moved on. Well, 10 years later, they came back and that very thing, that very well that they had tapped out was producing more than it ever did. So it refilled. And so part of this is that people don't understand what oil really is. And we can go into the idea that when I was young, I was told it was old dinosaurs. All these provably not true things told about where oil comes from. But what we found when Jason and I did the oil episode is nobody seems to know how they even make it or exactly what it is when it comes out of the ground. And they played these definitions with what they're pulling out of the ground to be able to make these other claims, like these are old dinosaurs and stuff like that. We even pointed out like Sinclair still has a dinosaur on their sign. 
but the other side of what's terrible about oil is it's been used in a way to prevent us from having better technologies. In other words, we could have had vehicles doing all these cleaner, better things, but we've been purposely held back so that those cars continue to burn oil. Right. There are a lot of electric things around the turn of the 20th century that a lot of people just don't even realize existed at the time. It's quite ironic that all the crap that all the people are crying up a storm about today, about renewable energy and all that stuff, we had it. Lots of the Western nations had it. We did. Not only that, what was it, the 80s? Was Who killed the electric car? Was that an 80s? I forget. It's a long time ago. But there's also all the work people have done to show all the conveyance systems that were based on compressed air. Yep. Uh, very impressive systems. Uh, so useful, particularly in local areas. Uh, and that all had to get thrown by the wayside, right? Because they don't burn oil. Just to sum that up in a nutshell, it was the Rockefellers. They did it. They did it all. They had all that stuff ripped up, pulled out, destroyed, whatever, because they wanted to sell a car and sell you the gas to put in it for the next 100 years. And here we are today. Well, it's kind of the same idea as Tesla. You know, what's true about him? You know, there's another myth where it's hard to get at things, but everyone's reasonably sure that there were much better ways to do something. And so they made up this other thing, the Wizard of Menlo Park and took a despicable human being and held him up as the inventor of all times and the greatest thing ever. And this man's out electrocuting elephants, uh, I kid you not, to push aside the better methods that were available. One of these days, I'll have to take a look at Tesla's patents. I've looked at some of them, some of the more basic ones, but I want to know what exactly he was going for, because if any of the stories are true, that should help at least dispel some of what's myth and what's not. Wasn't it interesting that this car company run by an actor is allowed to grab that family name? <laughs> There's probably a story in all that. I've thought about it a couple times, but, you know, is, is anything special have to go on or can you just go grab a very unique supposed last name <laughs> and uh, co-opt it for your uh, whatever you want to call that company? All right, moving on from an article from the main website of Penn State University. Are we running out of oil? Our transportation systems are highly dependent on petroleum. High and volatile prices for oil and at the pump naturally give rise to suggestions that oil production has peaked or that we are running out of oil. Concern over oil supplies is not new. In fact, historical projections suggest that the world has almost run out of oil at least five times in the past century. And the following will be several examples. In my lifetime, I've heard this over and over, and for people who are almost as old as dirt like I am, in the 70s, twice, um, it became such a fever-pitched idea that there was scarcity on oil. Uh, we, we used to drive from San Diego to Rhode Island when my father was on vacation time in the summer, and at one point, you could only get half a tank of gas, um, and at another point, I think it was the last digit on your license plate, odd or even, determined what days you could uh, purchase gas. And this was all on the back of the OPEC, you know, we've got problems with the Middle East idea. That, that's, one, that's one kind of concocted thing that never quits giving, is, isn't it, Jason? Problems in the Middle East. Oh, absolutely. And they convinced anyone, if anyone's older, let's say, and were around in the 70s as a young adult or an adult, that's probably still in their mind somewhere, how scarce oil is, because they did that twice, I think, right? I think it was at least twice, maybe three times. Yeah, they, they did it 
In the 70s, they did it twice, and it even got to the point where people were claiming that they took pictures of tankers out in the desert dumping, I don't know, fuel or petroleum or something. It was just another one of those false news cycles, uh, but back then, very few people were aware of how false the news cycles actually are. Uh, we had to get up into the modern era and pass things like 2001. And of course, here we are in 2020, where uh, just enormous numbers of minds are very aware of the false nature of things. But back then, you know, a lot of people were still proud to be Americans, the best country in the world. And it was crazy, man. There were times when you would go out to get gas and there would be lines like more than once around the block. Uh, fights breaking out everywhere, people, you know, swapping license plates, anything they could do needing gas. And it was all built on the false provocation called scarcity. And uh, let's do some of the examples here. Uh, we've almost run out of oil. Let's do some examples. And by the way, never, ever has there been a time in the United States that you should have a problem getting gas at the gas pump. The United States produces not just enough for the United States, but for the whole world. Yeah, there must have been so many dinosaurs, Jason, <laughs> to make all this oil. <laughs> and ferns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the first one here, the world will run out of oil in 10 years. This is from the U.S. Borough of Mines from 1914. Well, <laughs> I'm pretty certain that in 1924, nobody freaked out that, the, that there was no more gas available. Well... And come on, man. In 1914, how many things were even using oil in the way we did now? Was the Model T even out yet? I don't even know. <laughs> I mean, come on. It goes to show you how, how far back just this corrupted news cycle and corrupted government spokes things are. The next one. The world will run out of oil in 13 years. This time from the U.S. Department of the Interior in 1939 and 1950. Sure it will. Well, so in the middle of that is World War II, the supposed Great War, and look at the narrative that's been sewn into that about uh, there are still people who will tell you one of the reasons Japan didn't take over the world is because they didn't have the oil they needed. <laughs> Talk about a scarcity narrative. It was the same problem with Germany because they were landlocked and they didn't have any direct supplies. So once the Allies started taking out any place they had their store of petroleum, they were screwed. They couldn't go anywhere. What, what were they going to run their uh, their stuff off of? For me, the narratives around things like these major wars, uh, it's mostly 90% unacceptable. And while people were there and things did happen, what we know about who was funding it and how it was going, it, that knocks every other idea out of contention. When you understand that if you're going to have a war, it's going to cost a crap load of money which means somebody has to do loans, which means the central banks are going to be involved, which means from the get-go, since they've provably funded both sides of most conflicts, they can already determine who's doing what. Oh, you get this much money, or you don't get any money. Uh, it's, all, it's all a farce, man. It's just hard to talk about because people lose their minds. The world will run out of oil in 2030 and other fossil fuels in 2050, this time from Paul Ehrlich, Beyond the Limit from 2002. And I've heard of this guy. He's quite a piece of work. Well, it's ironic. So what's he saying? 2030? Right now, 
they're starting to push the idea that all the major car companies are going to be electric pretty quick. And by some date not too far in the future, 50% of their fleet and all this other stuff will be over to electric, which is ironic because a lot of people have the electric cars thinking they're helping the world. But the truth is, and I know this because I used to help launch uh, corporate solar companies in California. I actually designed um, the launch of a couple different businesses. One of them was a massive solar endeavor. And what you learn when you're doing that, it's just crazy. The majority uh, in most places where they're running electric cars, the majority of that electricity is generated like it ever did in some polluting way. And so now they're back around to saying it's going to be electric, but let's ask the question. So where's all the electricity coming from? I've pointed this out to people and they're like, oh, I didn't consider that. So here's where the electricity comes for the most part. Nuclear plants, if you happen to have one in your area, and if not, and they're not that common, it would either be a petroleum burning plant or there actually are still a lot of coal burning plants. The only good thing about being in the 21st century compared to the 20th century is that the coal burning plants are a heck of a lot cleaner and for the most part, all that's coming out of those stacks at this point is water vapor. They've really got the technology to the point that they can keep a lot of that garbage from going up in the atmosphere, which of course is a good thing. Well, there's another source that you didn't mention there, which is dams, hydroelectric. And they are well-named uh, from all the kind of occult natural knowing uh, that I've accumulated over my lifetime. I've come to accept that damming a river, that really is a sin. Uh, even building bridges, which most people, I don't have time to get into it right now, but even building bridges across a throughway uh, has an effect that I don't think most people ever would have thought about. So when you consider how most electricity is being built, the one that's probably the least polluting is what we call nuclear, although we've done so much work to show that what's likely going on there is they're just boiling water in a really expensive way. That, of course, is now out of favor, which is more of the scarcity. So if you remove ways to make energy, um, then things like oil or coal or other things have to supposedly fill the gap. Um, but for the, for the whole nuclear thing, Jason, for the most part, that's much cleaner, of course. Then we have things like Fukushima, right? So there's that narrative. And, and that, in fact, I'll say it out loud, that's a narrative, man. The big thing with nuclear power plants are yeah, all they're doing is using the heat from the uranium to boil water and turn a turbine. That's how you make electricity. You turn a turbine. It's how the power comes to turn the turbine that is the thing in question, whether it be something burning or the heat from uranium. The big thing with a lot of the nuclear plants are they're decades old at this point. They're only supposed to have an operating life, if I recall correctly, of 20 years. And a lot of them, they're pushing it 10 years or more. If you built a brand new nuclear power plant with modern technology, they're pretty safe as long as you run it properly and keep the maintenance up and that kind of thing. Well, we got to be careful what we say here where we are now, but that's safe. Safe from what? We've done so much work to show uh, the difference between what nukes are and what they're not. So as happens so often, when I lock my mind on a topic or a group of topics to start taking apart so that we can offer out maybe a more common sense point of view, when, I, when we were looking at the nuclear idea to, 
to debunk nukes, nuclear weapons to be specific. Uh, I was watching old Japanese films at the time. The samurai walks in, and I'm just going to ballpark this because I don't remember verbatim, but I remember how hard it slapped me across the face because I'm looking at Fukushima, I'm looking at Nagasaki, I'm looking at all these things. So a samurai who's a ronin needs a new master comes into a place and the new master says well where do you come from he said oh fukushima province and then he throws in um that he's from what's nagasaki what's the other one called jason hiroshima yeah so then he claims uh that he's from the fukushima prefecture and then he relates um the other ground zero to it uh through family line and for people who have learned how to watch movies and get what's below the surface. I mean, it smacked me right across the face. This was this movie was from pre-World War II. It's stunning. Just stunning what goes on. Well, the thing with nuclear power plants is not that it would act like a quote-unquote atomic bomb or nuclear weapon. It's boiling water that got out of control. So again, if you just put a lid on something, put it on the stove, and just kept heating it and heating it and heating it, at some point, the pressure would build up so much, the lid would blow off, right? That's a pretty basic version of what the concern with a nuclear plant would be. You wouldn't want to let something get out of control where there's so much heat built up. Because again, all you need to do to generate electricity is turn a turbine. And with a nuclear power plant, all they're using is heat to boil water to turn a turbine. So back when the Fukushima thing was going on, and I was calling poppycock all day long, uh, this was before YouTube became so instantly scrubbable. And for a while there, there was a clip of a guy who went up to Fukushima in shorts and a sandal, put a camera on a tripod, and walked all the way into the place, walked all around. It was quite, I don't know, 20, 30-minute clip, if I remember correctly, walks back up to the camera and shrugs like, come on. My problem with nukes is never going away. It's They're just not what we've been told they are. There are even people who follow this show for a long time who have gotten so-called radioactive elements or rocks, uh, and they'll tell you an entirely different tale. And to me, what I've come to accept as correct about these so-called radioactive things is they play a critically important role or can in the alchemical processes that would lift a human being uh, in this world. And so what's happened is all these radioactive elements, it's high crime. You get shot, you get caught with uranium or those other things. So it's all locked up somewhere. So if anyone wanted to go back and apply it to the alchemy of their lives, uh, it's not really that possible anymore. It's very difficult. And that's one of the reasons. But who can forget, what's the guy's name? Windsor. I never really vetted him out. Galen Windsor. Yeah, Galen Windsor. There are are others who have held uranium in their hands. Some people have eaten the radioactive things. Uh, It's just nukes don't exist as they're described. And so I don't buy for a second that Fukushima or uh, Chernobyl are anything more than a land grab. And by the way, speaking of the old Japanese narrative, Fukushima is an ancestral home of the samurai class, by the way. And there's a whole story tied in that. So that's from feudal times, which in some ways carried forward. But we just don't have time to break all that. And for anyone who's new to that kind of concept, the whole idea is that, yes, radioactivity is real. But really what's going on with uranium and plutonium is that it's emitting heat. 
And this person, Galen Windsor, who supposedly was around the nuclear industry in general, uh, dealing with the military and corporations and all that, he was demonstrating on camera that there's nothing to be afraid of and, in fact, was eating little pieces of plutonium on camera. And that was from the 80s and 90s. There's tons of videos out there. Hard to vet at this point, but he shows on screen, putting a Geiger counter up to it, that indeed these things are radioactive. Let's look at another narrative, Jason, that people remember when they were teeing up on Iraq, making up lies for a reason to go invade a country uh, illegally based on lies. What was one of the parts of that narrative? Oh, they got yellow cake uranium. Talk about a mind warp. First of all, yellow is almost always associated with the mind. There's an alchemical procedure in the using of the term yellow cake uranium that got everybody going again. Um, it was a spell that was cast that was very effective, which they later on said, oh, sorry, we were wrong. Um, but these narratives go on and on and on. And, you know, you're right. There are... Um, probably still clips on YouTube. I don't even know if the Windsor stuff's been scrubbed yet where they're eating it. And that I think led to the narrative that you have to purify it and do all these things before it really comes dangerous because people have been asking, well, what happens in a uranium mine? Um, are everybody wearing lead suits or what's going on there? And you find that for the most part, that's not what's going on there. And I think that led to the idea that it has to be purified and concentrated and all this fancy dancy stuff that nobody understands has to take place. Um, the only other side of that that kind of does lean towards sometimes these things can be dangerous is the old aboriginal idea of a place where there was uranium underground and they called it a place of dying or death or something like that. But here's the rub. The realized people in that society would actually go there to use the radiation to further them on their spiritual journey. So basically, if I understand correctly, the people who are not ready yet can get injured there. The people who are ready can go in there all day and use it to their benefit. And that also underscores my assertion that radioactive things can play a very critically important role in alchemy. Up next, in the 1950s, a geologist named M. King Hubbard looked at oil production data from all of the major oil producing countries in the world at that time. Based on his statistical analysis of the data, he projected that U.S. oil production would peak in the 1970s and that world oil production would peak during the first decade of the 21st century. These projections came to be known as Hubbard's Peak, and it turns out that Hubbard's projections were highly accurate. U.S. oil production did peak in the 1970s, and the collection of oil-producing countries that Hubbard originally studied did see their collective oil production peak in the early 2000s. So maybe Hubbard had a point, and maybe there is something to the peak oil paranoia. Now, those aren't my words. That's from, again, these articles I've been pulling out. And what they're referring to when they say peak oil, it's what they call sweet crude, the stuff that's really easy for them to dig and get out of the ground. And, well, there's tons of oil. <laughs> and as we discussed earlier, a lot of times, even after you've supposedly drunk the well dry, about a decade or two later, you can go back and, oh, look, there's more. Well, that's because oil is not a fossil fuel. It is almost certainly what's called abiotic oil, meaning that it's somehow generated by the earth itself. Almost like the lifeblood, but let's use some common sense to take this poppy freaking cock apart. So, we're told there's a world where all these countries that are always at odds with each other and go to war. Why would any country ever report accurately their oil production if that was true? 
because that's one of the main things, right? You need your aircraft carriers and your jets and all your Jeeps and all your things to work with oil. So there's the first kind of thorn in the side of this nonsense. If that narrative is true, that countries are in it for themselves and that they have to watch out for the neighbors and they're going to be at war, or if they have any enemies anywhere, why would you ever report what your true production of any given resource that matters is? But you see, you and I have had some inside looks, haven't we, Jason? So if you know a thing about a major industry that is massive in this world and you discover something going on that you didn't expect, isn't it common sense to consider that any major industry would be doing similar things? We'll probably push this into hour two, but this is going to have to do with metal production and all those people that are into silver and gold and we're going to blow your damn minds. Um, And this is case in point. Um, Why would anyone who is interested in keeping an oil market alive ever announced that we just found the biggest oil well of all time or anything like that because the price would plummet. Uh, It should become more available. All these things would happen. So I'm stating that probably at no time was actual real production of petroleum products ever reported accurately because that goes against scarcity and what we can show all day long. Jason started in 1914. Scarcity, scarcity, scarcity. You got to scare the city, man. If you want to hold control, you've got to scare the city. And how do we know this to be true? Well, go outside. How many masks do you count? There's a scared city, right? And the whole concept of an oil producing nation. Well, guess what? If you are a nation that is producing significant amounts of oil, you are no doubt whatsoever in bed with the elite scumbags, because that's how the entire world's oil producing and markets and all that stuff work. It's all to do with the buying and selling of oil, and then the petrodollar gets involved. It's all got to do with the elite, and that's it. It's not about any individual country at that point. So if you're a company, a massive company that controls the oil supply or a major portion of it, how is it that you don't have control over the government? I mean, there's another idea we could get into. Um, I was going to point out that it'll come to me in a minute. I had another thing to point out about the whole oil thing, but. We also know that governments don't matter. It's all about corporations. We all know this. The governments are Sure, they do things on a, on a local basis, but it's more about the corporations and what they control, and they're pushing the chess pieces around on, on the world stage. Right, and this, this has become so apparent to anyone who's mildly awake from 2020 forward that corporations run this joint. They, they do it all, and that's another problem with the, the digital world we're entering. That is wholly constructed and operated by corporations. Um, the idea of government is going to fade and fade and fade unless something changes. But what was, God, I had a, a critical thing that we had come across. I'll think of it as you go along, Jason. All right. And to finish out that last part, the reality of the amount of oil is more complex. When Hubbard made his predictions in the 1950s, the oil industry was still in its technical infancy. Most oil production came from so-called elephant oil fields, tremendously large reservoirs of easily accessible oil. And again, this is the sweet crude I've been mentioning. To imagine what these elephant fields were like, think about the theme song to the Beverly Hillbillies when Jed Clampett shoots a hole in the ground and oil comes spouting up. The elephant oil fields that represented most oil production during Hubbard's time were basically like Jed Clampett oil. What Hubbard was predicting was really the decline in Jed Clampett oil. 
Well, one has to consider, um, you know, is there a gift for fear and creating change in our world that gives more than the Middle East? If there is, I don't think I'm aware of it. Uh, maybe up in the modern era, there are things that are starting to uh, surpass the the uh, the fear narrative that's required. But if I'm not mistaken, and I remember back to the research we did for the oil episode, or SODES, I guess, um, it was the early 60s when a Southern California, I hope I'm getting this right, oil company, I forget whether it was Exxon, something like that, Amico, I don't remember, but Southern California discovers or makes available all this oil in the, in the Middle East. So I'll ask a simple question. Had oil never been discovered, to use their narrative, in the Middle East, would the Middle East ever have mattered on the world stage as we see it now? Now, immediately in the next decade, the 70s, it was all this shortage. Oh, we don't have enough, and it's OPEC's fault. It's those damn Arabs in the desert causing all this trouble, all of which has been proved nonsensically you know, scarcity-based. But uh, a little common sense goes a long way, and the problem is, is we've been believing narratives and trusting for so long, uh, common sense is not an easy thing to reestablish, to be blunt about it. So everything I just read through, that was all the Penn State article, but I found some other stuff as well. Here we go, 1909, 25 or 30 years longer. Petroleum has been used for less than 50 years, and it is estimated that the supply will last about 25 or 30 years longer. If production is curtailed and waste stopped, it may last till the end of the century. The most important effects of its disappearance will be in the lack of illuminance. Animal and vegetable oils will not begin to supply its place. This being the case, the reckless exploitation of oil fields and the consumption of oil for fuel should be checked. That's dated July 19th, 1909, the Titusville Herald from Titusville, Pennsylvania. And yet the big industry in our world ignores every word just said as if it was poppycock, because it is, and they build the biggest auto industry ever known, starting around this time in a place called Detroit. So if this was true, why would anyone build the infrastructure that became Detroit? Um, because the thing they need to run everything they're building is only going to last for a decade or two or three or four. Um, it's all common sense that can be shown to completely undercut. Much easier for us now looking back, but I mean, you could still apply this looking forward. Just look at the industry around us. These big multinational, most powerful places in the world, um, they know more than their damn governments because all the things they discover while they're out there looking for oil, those are trade secrets. They don't have to share that with anyone anywhere, uh, and they'll tell you as much. They'll state, this is, uh, this is classified information peculiar to our industry, and uh, we created it, we learned it, and we use it, and we share it with nobody. And there's just a little more common sense brought to bear to show in 1909 the fear porn being purveyed uh, was just that, fear porn, provably fear porn. And John D. Rockefeller consolidating so much of the oil it wasn't necessarily the production, it was the refinement that he did, but he consolidated all that down, and of course, that makes it incredibly easy to control from the top down. That's how these globalists or elite bankers, whatever you want to call them, that's how they work. There's the diamond story. You just, you just basically described the diamond story. There's so many diamonds in the world that we've got to control the entirety of the release of diamonds in the world to create scarcity. That's probably the tale being told with petroleum products, after all. 
Uh, is it really that petroleum is a bit like the lifeblood of the world? How can you tap an oil well dry and then come 10 years later and it's producing more than it ever did? See, that narrative is the antithesis of pushing a, scare, a scarcity narrative. You can't have both of those things in the same sentence. And so we see what happens. They need the scarcity. The main word being they're scare. That's what they need. Okay, 1919. Two to five years until maximum production. In meeting the world's needs, however, the oil from the United States will continue to occupy a less and less dominant position because within the next two to five years, the oil fields of this country will reach their maximum production, and from that on, we will face an ever-increasing decline. Dated October 23rd, 1919, Oil and Gas News. Well, that's just preposterous! Yeah, count the ways, 1919, in oil and gas news. You're not news. You're a corporate mouthpiece is what you are. And now that we can look back at you, 1919, and count your ways, it's utter poppycock. And so how is it that as a society, we can look back and know through just common sense and logic what was being done here, and yet we can't apply it to the world we live in, as if we're, we live in this the now bubble that's free of all this nonsense. Uh, the truth of it is, Jason, is if we were a kind of society that was responsible, we would be looking at these narratives in reverse. But you see, this is the whole scare tactic. Fear, need, and materialism are drivers beyond drivers. Uh, these are the things that have been implemented to take control of the human mind and lower us to a level where I suspect, you know, I, 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 accept all day long. We're in the Iron Age. I think we're beyond the low point from everything that I've looked at and studied. Very difficult things to know. Uh, apparently realized, highly realized people are in the know, so they claim. Uh, but what we're looking at is how did we get here? And these are the things, man. It's like almost like you're going to see a cycle. They're going to claim a cycle. There's going to be good times and bad times in this cycle. There are those in this world that understand when the potentiality for bad times come and they pile on like a mofo. And that's what's going on now. Uh, right now, we're either in, and I accept that we probably are in, the age of Aquarius. What sign is Aquarius in the Zodiac, Jason? It's the 11th sign. Someone has been planning and leveraging off these things, had to be in the know for so long, it almost blows the mind when you start to look beyond what's obvious. Like, why are all these numbers being used? Why does this date come up over and over? What is it with nines and elevens? And, you know, I can tie it to the metatonic cycle of the moon. There's a basic tenet of our world, like the 11-year cycle of the sun. There's a basic tenet of our world, and these are all occult things. But here back in 1919, uh, again, we can look backwards and count the ways and understand that this was utter poppycock. And who did it? Not the evening news, the oil and gas news. I don't know when we grow up, hopefully before too many more years go by. So do you think there was a phone call in the early 20th century from John D. Rockefeller to old Ford where he said, Henry, you might want to get into a different business? No, that's ridiculous. No, it was more like a phone call that probably didn't require a phone where they said, we're both of a common ancestry and we'll work together because from their point of view, they're on the endangered species list. That's what I would guess. Next, 1937, gone in 15 years. Captain H.A. Stewart, 
director of the Naval Petroleum Reserves, told the Senate Naval Affairs Committee today the oil supply of this country will last only about 15 years. We have been making estimates for the last 15 years, Stewart said. We always underestimate because of the possibility of discovering new oil fields. The best information is that the present supply will last only 15 years. That is a conservative estimate. And that is dated March 9th, 1937, Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Once again, ridiculous. This is right before World War II. And, well, they certainly didn't have any shortage to uh, drive trucks, fly planes, whatever. Definitely not an issue. Well, it goes to show if old Captain Stewart was telling the Senate Naval Affairs Committee, uh, clearly they would have taken this seriously and started coming up with new technologies. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. 1943, peak oil has been reached. There is a growing opinion that the United States has reached its peak oil production, the Oil and Gas Journal pointed out in its current issue. Since 1938, discoveries of new oil have not equaled withdrawals in any single year, although there is a very good chance that 1943 will see enough new Ellenberger oil in West Texas to provide an excess, and that is dated June 7th, 1943, Bradford Evening Star from Bradford, Pennsylvania. Once again, this is World War II going on. Absolutely ridiculous. They had no problems whatsoever during the Second World War. Well, worse than that, Jason, 43. So in a decade, when we get into the early 50s, uh, this country is going to change. There's a little thing called interstates. Highways and freeways are going to go in. They're going to name it after a five-star general at first, Eisenhower. You can still see those signs if you drive across the country. But more people are going to have vehicles, and families are going to be multi-vehicled many times. And the level of just everyday human being oil usage is going to go through the roof. Think of what happened in the 50s with vehicles in this country. Um, So it doesn't even take common sense to see what's going on here. Next is 1945, just 13 years left. Faced with the threat that our nation's petroleum reserves may last only 13 years, geologists are striving to tap the almost limitless supply of oil located beneath the seas off our coastline. The first attempt to get oil from the depths of the Atlantic Ocean was begun this month near Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, and Secretary of the Interior Harold L. Ikes revealed that the scientists are making progress in their efforts to reach the underwater oil. Dated December 10th, 1945, the Times recorder from Zanesville, Ohio. So I remembered what I wanted to point out. So it's not enough that we have these overall fear porny scarcity ideas coming out. But you see, they've done something else within the industry that's really quite clever. Did you know that they deliver supposedly a different blend of gas to California? Because California is so big and it's got such strict emissions control, they can't have the gas that's for somewhere else. So there's a certain refinery that makes this special gas or a couple or whatever it is. But you see, these are more tools for scarcity, and that has come into play regularly in California. And not only that, there's more to it than that. Did you know that the further south in in, uh, California you go, quite often the more expensive your gas, and they're going to tell you it's because of the delivery problem. That's the scarcity being created to jack the price way up. Uh, What's crazy is there have been times in my life when the price of gasoline has been well over $3 
maybe even tipping four sometimes in Southern California. And I've driven across the United States and gotten to places in the South where it's a third. The cost is like a third or even less. Um, it's insane how much control over what happens to us the idea of scarcity has. Next, we have 1956, 10 to 15 years until peak oil. M. King Hubbard of the Shell Development Company predicted one year ago that peak oil production would be reached in the next 10 to 15 years, and after that would gradually decline. Dated March 9, 1957, Corpus Christi Times, Corpus Christi, Texas. Well, so for those of us with eyes to see who have learned a few things about how the world actually operates, they accurately named their company, Shell Development Company. See that S there? You know the one, the 19, that S? Just remove it, and you see exactly who they are. I thought it was a shell game. <laughs> it is a shell game. It's just that the S is hiding the fact that it's really a hell game. Next is 1966, Gone in 10 Years. A geologist stuck a figurative dipstick into the United States <laughs> oil supplies Tuesday and estimated that the country may be dry in 10 years. August 3rd, 1966, Brandon's son from Brandon, Manitoba. Man, this is just funnier and funnier. Do these people even fact check themselves? I don't think so. No, and they're, they're poking you in a dipstick. Everyone knows what that word means. Why didn't they use a different one? I'll tell you why. Because we're the dipsticks. 1972, U.S. oil depleted in 20 years. At any rate, U.S. oil supplies will last only 20 years. Foreign supplies will last 40 or 50 years, but are increasingly dependent upon world politics. May 1972, Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. <laughs> the atomic dudes, uh-oh, getting high tech here. So let's ask a simple question. We learned firsthand and later had it backed up in a few ways that you can tap out a oil well, come back sometime later, and it's producing more than it ever did. There are people out there who would describe this thing we call oil, which as far as I know is really not that well understood by most of us, as the blood, the life's blood of the earth. If that is true, wouldn't it imply that every well everywhere uh, would act the same way. I mean, why would we think any differently? Unless we have data to show that this is absolutely not true, wouldn't we say that if this thing does this thing and there's another thing identical to it, it should probably act in the same manner? Is it possible? And knowing, looking at the scarcity since the early 1900s and how it's been pushed and how monopoly was put around it and how different ways to make it and all these ways to control it, to do a simple thing, to control our movement and to cost us money at whatever level they decide is appropriate for the time. Wouldn't it be ironic to learn that every well ever, ever dug will replenish itself? I'm just saying. And let's do 1977 to end hour one, and then we'll pick up in hour two with 1980. So oil will peak by the early 90s. Funny, I don't remember that. As a nation, Americans have been reluctant to accept the prospect of physical shortages. We must recognize that world oil production will likely peak in the early 1990s, and from that point on, will be on a declining curve. By the early part of the 21st century, we must face the prospect of running out of oil and natural gas. 1977, U.S. Department of Energy Organization Act. And of course, complete and utter balderdash. 
well, knowing what we know and looking at it so blatantly, you know, from the early 1900s all the way up past mid-century, uh, which we can all remember now in some way, shape, or form, it's almost like you could wonder, is it even possible to run out of this thing? Uh, I mean, hypothetically, I guess you could just do it so much that you'd run it dry for a while. But I've often wondered what exactly that effect would truly have on whatever the Earth truly is under the ground, because we don't exactly know, do we? Because we can't go below, what is it, eight miles or something like that? Well, as far as I know, in my lifetime, from firsthand experience, in the 70s, there were twice when it was, in fact, difficult to get that tank of gas. Uh, if, if there was any real scarcity in the world ever, wouldn't you expect that that would happen more than one time, twice in the same decade? And by the way, we can now look at what supposedly caused that, scarcity and we understand that it was scarcity it was news that's what caused the scarcity so i'm just saying is it possible that there are certain things like water is a prime example and i used it in the episode image because you can see them teeing up on the idea of water this even made fun of in back to the future where uh they make the comment you know someone's buying a bottle of water who the hell would ever do that that's how far we've come in my lifetime this is like trying to charge someone for air and yet we all have bought water now. Back then, it was unthinkable. We do it now. And yet they tee up on the scarcity of water. And yet all the work I've done into occult and older traditions will tell you that we leave in basically a hermetically sealed environment. Basically, everything that's ever been here is still here. And so let's consider water for a second. If there's been enough water since the beginning of time, we'll even use their nonsense narrative. All the dinosaurs, all the everything that they ever claimed lived, there has never been a shortage of water. What about when the supposed ice age hit, right? All that water was frozen, and yet there was enough water. Life never stopped here. Um, so when we go back and we apply common sense observations like this, we should be able to avoid the idea that things like water will become a scarcity manipulated thing. All right, well, that's going to do it for hour one. And in hour two, we've got some more of this absolute poppycock to show how they're trying to scare the bejesus out of the common person. And then we're going to get into diamonds and then precious metals. And it's all the same crap. It's all manipulation, just as we always tell you. It's all social engineering nonsense so that you will do what these damned people want. Well, the thing, when we get into the metals, uh, we're going to drop some firsthand knowing. And it, it's stunning. It, it really is kind of stunning because when you step back and you try to apply what you will have learned, what we had just learned at that point to things like the stock market, to things like how any market works, you begin to understand that the whole thing is a complete put up clown show. Not only is it artificial, it is artificial at such a level that it blows your damn mind that it's been able to creep along as long as it has fooling so many and we're going to drop the dime on precious metals but there it is man there's hour one of episode 306 we hope you join us for hour two at crow triple seven radio.com c-r-r-o-w seven 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 radio.com and i'd like to wish you all a happy healthy and higher-minded new era and uh i think that new era is actually here we may be through the transition. We're going to have Dylan back, right, Jason, to cover this? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we're going to get into the ideas of Aquarius. The 11th Zodiac, 
Now bounce that off all the 11s you've seen recently. There it is, man. Cheers. Is the enemy. Is the